Hello, and welcome to another APW Property Podcast. And today I'm delighted to be able to talk to you about a speech I recently made in the Houses of Parliament. Uh, yes, King Charles III, uh, that's me. I made the first King's speech for 70 years. Uh, well, that was King Charles III's speech to the Houses of Parliament. And today I'm joined by Callum Williamson, and we're going to be taking a look at the elements of the proposed legislative agenda which are of interest to property owners and landlords. But first, uh, let's say hello. Hi, Callum. Hi, Paul. Or should I say sir? Is that how you address the king? Sir hey, or his uh, majesty? Your, your majesty. Is, your majesty. Yeah. How yes, are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, how are you? Very well, thank you. Very well indeed. And in Oz uh, uh, at the moment, apparently. Yes, down in Oz at the time of recording. Just spent three weeks in in Asia, out of the Malaysia office, doing a couple of events, Dubai, Singapore. So just here for a week or so now and then back up there. You international jet setter, you. Yeah, it's a tough old life, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I'm just here in Ramsgate. <laughs> oh, lovely. <laughs> Not quite as glamorous. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, the King's Speech, Callum, uh, what was of relevance to your customers? Yeah, okay. Well, as ever, there were a lot of bills proposed. Uh, it's election year, so some of the enthusiasm for passing laws might be waning. Uh, but still, the main two bills for property owners and landlords to keep an eye on are the Renters Reform Bill, which has been talked about a lot uh, recently, uh, which continues to trundle its way through the corridors of power. And then there's the new Leasehold Reform Bill. Okay, yeah. So actually from the speech, it said, uh, my ministers will bring forward a bill to reform the housing market by making it cheaper and easier for leaseholders to purchase their freehold and tackling the exploitation of millions of homeowners through punitive service charges. Renters will benefit from stronger security of tenure and better value, while landlords will benefit from reforms to provide certainty that they can regain their properties when needed. Uh, so those are the two bills. Uh, take those one by one. Um, so abolish no-fault evictions under Section 21, but only once stronger possession grounds and new court processes are in place. Uh, so they're still going to go ahead with this uh, slightly controversial Section 21 no-fault eviction, but they're putting in this other caveat. What, what do we make of that, Callum? Yeah, I think, you know, with a lot of this stuff, you've got to sort of read between the lines and try not to get sucked into it. I think we were... I mentioned already the events we, we had last week at the time of recording, not when this is going out, probably, but, you know, that was one of the questions we had before we sort of had the intros from the experts there. It was, a, it was more of a networking session this time as opposed to presentations. And someone said, well, what about the Section 21? And I think, look, the no-fault evictions, it just sort of stresses the need, I think, to make sure you're doing your DD. Obviously, you can't avoid it. You may have to evict someone at some point, but you can stack the odds in your favor by making sure you're getting a good quality tenant in a in a property, right? And that comes from doing basics well, you know, like working with a good quality management agent, asking to, to see the applications for tenants yourself. So an example of a uh, of a place I rented out recently, I asked to see the, the vetting process for the tenants and I had a few came through and, and there was one there that was for an 11 month lease, which is slightly different to the normal 12, but the guy was on a, he's a doctor, 
and he was on a 12, 11 month placement in a hospital that's nearby to the flat. So, you know, I went with that option because the quality of tenant is much higher and the, the chance of needing to evict that type of tenant is much lower. So I think before you get sucked into the section 21, rewind and try and make sure you find a good quality tenant first and try and avoid this whole section 21 thing. But yeah, you know, we need, it does need to be tightened up around how it's going to work and the exact specifics because it's still a little bit vague, you know. Yeah, a couple of uh, picking up on a couple of points. DD, you mentioned there, that's uh, due diligence, I think. Um, and uh, renting to doctors, well, you're going to get less wear and tear because they work so hard, they're never going to be in the flat. So, um, <laughs> that's it. Um, yeah, the, it shows uh, the data at the moment. This is from the National uh, Residents Landlords Association. It shows it takes over half a year for courts to process legitimate possession claims made by private landlords. And according to figures published by the Ministry of Justice, it takes an average of almost 29 weeks between a private landlord making a legitimate possession claim to the courts and actually getting the property back. This, you know, people just argue that that's far too long, especially if you're trying to get rid of a tenant that might be continuing to commit a, um, antisocial behaviour or not paying their rent. So going back to the bill, um, strengthened landlord grounds for possession, including reasons such as antisocial uh, or repeated rent arrears. Uh, so we're going to see more detail on that. But that's, yes, they're, they're going to, uh, while getting rid of the no-fault evictions, they're going to beef up the other uh, repossession criteria. Yeah, which I think is a, is a good thing. I mean, I think, again, it's a sign you know, of trying to make the industry a bit more professional. You know, I think if you've, a lot of people became land, um, accidental landlords and, over the years and those accidental landlords may want to you know repossess a property for an unspecified reason but in reality if you're a professional landlord which is what we should try and aim to be if we're buying property to, to build wealth from it then you know you should have a plan and you shouldn't really be wanting to repossess or, or take back ownership of properties if they've got a good quality tenant in them so yeah for sure i think anti-social behavior and and rent arrears are a good grounds to kick people out i guess to to use the term but um uh and i think it also stresses the importance of buying in the right place again i just talked about the tenants but a lot of people i was just writing a note to a client and he was talking about trying to maximize his yield get a higher yield as possible well often a really high yield comes as a result of a lower property value and in some not all areas where you have much lower property values say inner city locations in the north where you can buy property for 60,000 quid generally sometimes not all the time the tenant quality is going to be lower as well so these are just all things you need to you know be considering when you're looking at the bigger picture okay uh so um end the blanket ban on pets allowing tenants to request a oh. pet while protecting landlords with potential damage insurance uh, requirements great idea i mean in in uh, in australia you know, actually it is, it's the other way around. You, every place is allowed to have a pet. It's sort of, it's the standard and it, you've actually got to specify if you don't want pets in your building. And um, then it even comes down to building by building. So the sort of the committee for the people that live in the building can decide themselves. So I think it's a great idea. And also for the savvy landlord, it's a good opportunity. You know, um, if you're offering homes. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, go, Gary, finish your thought there. 
I would say if you, you know, I was reading a magazine, a property magazine the other day, and they were saying it's a nice niche, you know, if you're actually opening up your properties to people with pets, who, by the way, are very often respectable people, you know, someone respectable only if they've got Labradors, you know, if they've got a little dog that comes up to the ankle, then maybe not. But, you know, normally pet owners are responsible people. They're looking after another living thing, so they're going to be good with the rent, all that sort of stuff. So I think it's a great idea. So you're talking about pets in Australia there, and it reminded me of just one of my favourite bits. It came from the Australian Parliament, and uh, someone said, uh, you know, honestly, this guy, he can't say, the guy is mad. And uh, you can't say, you know, you can't, they've got the same rules as the British Parliament. You can't really use that as unparliamentary language. And so there was a whole load of, I withdraw, withdraw. He said, all right, all right, I withdraw it. But what I will say about the guy is he's got a couple of kangaroos loose in the upper paddock. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, it's amazing. They let the pets, let you have pets down here because, I mean, the variety of the pets you have in the UK is going to be cats and dogs and fish. And you might get the odd sort of slightly stranger person, person with a tarantula, but here it's all sorts, you know, the yes. um, cockatoos, cockatiels, all sorts of animals. So, yeah. Uh, my wife's very upset though, because we once rented a place and uh, they were, you know, seemed to be a respectable designer, Danish couple that worked in design, uh, but they had uh, tortoises and uh, we'd left a, we'd left her father's suitcase uh, on top of the wardrobe, which was the suitcase he used to come to the UK from the Caribbean. And they took it down off the wardrobe and let their tortoise used it as a tortoise bed, and they just ruined it. And it was just you know really upsetting for her. So you yeah. have to be careful. You know, don't leave don't leave treasured possessions anyway. Yeah, fair, good point. Um, so uh, create a new digital private rented property portal to provide key information for landlords, tenants and councils. Government property portals, what do we think about those? Yeah, I mean, good idea. You know, anything that gives, that demystifies property and gives people, you know, that's what we're trying to do is is give people access to information that they otherwise potentially wouldn't have or would have to dig around for. So. I mean, I imagine it probably wouldn't be very straightforward and it would be very difficult to get into and all of that sort of stuff because it's a government portal. But, you know, if it's done properly, then it would be a good thing. Okay. Uh, Establish a private rented sector ombudsman for quicker and cheaper dispute resolution, reducing the need for costly court proceedings. Good idea. Good idea, but yet my experience with government ombudsmans, though, is (laughs) is that they are far from quick. So, uh, you know, if it actually does what it says on the tin, then good idea. Okay. And protect the student rental market by introducing a new ground for possession. PBSA is already exempt. Okay. What do we mean by that exactly? Well, I don't know. So obviously they're going to introduce a clause that means that actually the student rental market is, you know, you can if it, you know you can get rid of your tenants or there'll be a special student clause that means that the tenancy ends at the end of the academic year uh, because there had been big worries about the fact that students, you know, could then rent for a year and go, oh, actually, I haven't got a job. Why don't I just stay in this flat? And if without a, with a no-fault eviction removed, you wouldn't have any way of getting rid of them, which was causing yeah. concern. Okay, um, I see. As for PBSA, I don't know what that means. I should have looked it up. 
Uh, and I do know what that is. That's purpose-built student accommodation. Ah, so there you go. It's, you know, student pods, basically. They were, they're already exempted themselves. And uh, not require landlords to meet EPCC standards in their rented properties by 2025. So EPC is Energy Performance Certificate. So Rishi had already announced that, hadn't he? Yeah, well, and that was it. I mean, if you're one of the many millions of people that listen to this podcast every Monday, then you will know that that's something we've been saying for a while is don't get stressed out about that because, you know, in reality, if these things happen, they take a long time to go through. So, uh, you know, I think that's only good news because, I mean, the cost involved in doing that for landlords would mean heaps and heaps of people would leave the market, which would just make, you know, having enough rental stock on the market even worse. You know, it's already there's already not enough, so that would have made it worse. So well done, Rishi. Good move. Okay. Uh, so um, from the British Property Federation as well, this sort of summary was um, largely down to them. Uh, they had some areas of concern, which was the ending rental review clauses and making a Section 13 notice the only way to increase rent. Uh, their take was that the Section 13 process handling rent adjustments is complex, Many build-to-rent schemes rely on index-linked reviews for predictability. Uh, so that's where investors, you know, they know that the rent is going to go up so they can calculate that in their investments. And if you're building to rent, then the developers need all of those investors to, to put their money into the development in order to be able to build it. So this Section 13 idea, it's, you know, time-consuming, costly, and could strain the tribunal uh, that sits over all of the cases with an influx of cases due to the proposed changes. So, as I say, the bill's kind of gone to the committee stage and it's trundling through power, Parliament. So, uh, you know, it's a kind of wait and see as to what the final details are. Speeding up the court's process to help landlords regain property when tenants refuse to vacate. Well, it's not included in the bill and they've just there some vague promises at the moment. So there's some worries about whether uh, and how much uh, they're going to be able to speed up the court process. Their take is there remains a lack of detail over whether this verbal promise from Michael Gove has much weight. And as currently worded, the bill offers only one month's notice to quit at the beginning of a new periodic tenancies. So this is the shift away from short-term assured tenancies towards periodic tenancies, um, which was basically an automatic renewal. And uh, they're saying that there is some concern about the short-term letting loophole, uh, which the government rejected addressing in their response to the LUHC committee, uh, emphasising tenant flexibility, owing to high costs and the unlikelihood of tenants moving. So those are the areas of concern. Um, what do you think of those? Again, you've got to sort of, with all of these these things, you've got to, like I said earlier, try and read between the lines a little bit and see what the wording is and how likely it is that they're all going to happen. You know, I think speeding up the court's process to help landlords regain property when tenants refuse to vacate. I mean, that would be great if they could do that. Uh, you know, how long is it going to take in reality? We don't know. And I think you've got to try and look at what are the government's priorities as well. You know, what are the key things they're going to try and push through here? I mean, it's a lot of stuff that's been stuff it's a lot of there's a lot of points that have been raised here so you know what are the key the key things that they're going to try and work on i think so i guess some things to consider 
Okay. Um, just a couple of uh, extra facts from the background briefing as well. Uh, most landlords and properties let are sensitive to shifts in interest rates. Almost 60% of landlords and almost 70% of properties let are financed through a buy-to-let mortgage. Uh, we must protect their rights to increase rents to the market level. Most landlords hold a small portfolio. Having worked hard to secure this property, over 40% rent out just one property, while a further 40% own between two and five, and the remaining 18% own five or more. We must ensure that the new system works for all. So this is the difference between the kind of institutional professional landlords. Uh, like you say, then you've got the people who own between two and five and that accidental landlord category almost that... that uh, has just got the one property. Where are most of your clients, uh, Callum? I'd say, you know, uh, probably in that 40% of between two and five, and then, you know, a sort of 25% of them in, in the five or more, generally speaking, you know, that's the aim of the game is to, you know, try and build something larger for the long term. And I think certainly you need more than one to do that. I mean, some people obviously do have one if they're just starting on the journey, but I think, yeah, building, building up to more is the way to go. And I mean, a lot of people have a, have a number or a figure, you know, and that's generally quite common. We see 10 people would like to try and get to 10 paid off, you know, to fund a retirement. So that's quite a common goal that people are working towards, but yeah, between two and five and then five plus, I'd say. Okay. Um, so at uh, least hold reform. Yeah, also part of His Majesty's speech. It aims to improve the situation with leaseholders who sometimes are paying high ground rents uh, and also often suffer exorbitant charges at the hands of managing agents and also have to go through a complex and expensive process to extend their lease. So it's trying to alleviate some of those issues. Okay, well, the main points of the proposed bill are increasing the standard lease extension term from 90 years to 990 years for both houses and flats, with ground rent reduced to zero pounds. Uh, removing the requirement for a new leaseholder to have owned their house or flat for two years before they can enfranchise or seek a leasehold extension. Uh, increasing the 25% non-residential limit in mixed-use property to 50%. Improving transparency on service charges. Replacing buildings insurance commissions for managing agents, landlords and freeholders with administration fees. Extending redress schemes to freeholders. Getting rid of the presumption for leaseholders to pay their freeholders legal costs. Uh, banning the creation of new leasehold houses other than in, in exceptional circumstances. And a consultation on capping existing ground rents. What strikes you as being most important yeah, look, I think uh, I think there's again they're all they're all pretty good points. The the ground rent is uh, you know on on all new builds now there is no ground rent, so that's in force, which I think is a is positive. I think extending a leasehold again, you know, looking back to, I mean, it's basically the same thing, right? Leasehold or freehold, but people get put off by the idea that you know 125 year leasehold isn't isn't long enough. Um, even though you can extend it again, talking about that couple, I was, I was talking about at the Singapore event uh, earlier, you know, they were saying, Oh, well, we wouldn't do a 250 year leasehold, but we would do a 999 year leasehold. So I think that would give people peace of mind that leasehold is, you know, a good way to go. 
I mean, I personally think leasehold is great as long as you do your research and check that these costs are not going to be increasing massively. Let's look at some of the others. Improving transparency on service charges, you know, that's great, again, because, uh, you know, they, they do have a tendency to rise if you're not careful. So that would be a good thing, I think. Um, there was that one story, I forget where it was, where there was a whole... They were trying to make a, a housing estate of these leasehold houses and the leasehold would cover the upkeep of all the communal areas and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, the houses are worth are worth nothing now because the service charge has gone up so much. No one wants to live there and no one's willing to pay it. So, you know, I think if you've got a landed house, as they say, in Asia, then it should be freehold. Okay. But, you know, just don't buy a leasehold house. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, that's... um. The BPF, the British Property Federation, their areas of concern, they said, suggest that it was a bill of missed opportunity and stored up problems. Uh, it wants to improve the experience of leaseholders, yet says nothing about their main day-to-day -day interaction with managing agents who are unregulated. Uh, it also wants to scrap ground rents, yet says nothing about the disruption that will cause to everyday management and building remediation efforts as freeholders' businesses become unviable. Silence kicks common hold into the long grass, perhaps forever, and raising the enfranchisement threshold on mixed-use property, it damages the mixed-use property investment market as more landlords lose their development rights and control of their property's management, hurting levelling up in the process. Uh, though they may not know it, the bill will wipe billions off the savings of not just investors but charities, pensioners and local authorities. The bill has some useful reform, fairly apportioning legal costs Banning the sale of most leasehold houses, lightening up insurance commissions and extending redress are all sensible measures. Overall, however, it's a patchwork and some way from the comprehensive reform suggested by the Law Commission. Uh, so that's their take, uh, you know, uh, and it's this thing where they're trying to do something, but they may be creating unintended consequences in the bill, but it's only at the start of its journey couple of extra facts from the background briefing document there are 752,000 households with children and 1.48 million over 65s who are leasehold homeowners uh, leasehold reform will support the housing market 49% of leaseholders are first-time buyers and 28% of leaseholders are under 35 land registry data tells us that 22% of residential property transactions in 2019 were leasehold that's around 238 thousand transactions in total. Almost all flats are sold on a leasehold basis compared to 6% of houses. So not many leasehold houses, but 6%, that's quite a high figure. Um, and uh, yes, like you say, all flats. I don't know how they'll address this sort of flats leasehold idea, but being able to you know, extend your lease makes sense. So let's hope they do something. Uh, final thoughts, Callum? For sure, yeah. I think... Um... That was interesting about the, the sort of pensioners and pension funds losing money. I mean, that is true. A lot of these funds do rely on ground rent from these large flats developments. But I think quite selfishly, that's not really the area of the market I'm in or our clients are in. So I think for us, actually, it's probably not a bad thing until you get to the level where you're owning a whole block of flats. But um, look, it's election year. The government wants to avoid controversy, so we'll see how all of this pans out. Okay. Uh, well, that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, join us every Monday as we post fresh episodes. Until then, it's goodbye from Callum. 
goodbye and I'm doing the Royal Wave. You can't see it, but I'm doing it. <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's my job. I'll do it too. Uh, and, uh, uh, Tara for me, um, Toodle Pip, uh, waving goodbye as well in the virtual studio booth is our excellent producer, Emma Holton from Brilliant Audio. My name is Paul Shearer. Have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast series produced for APW by Emma Holton at Brilliant Audio. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe, hit like, share it with your friends. If you didn't, keep stum. You can find more episodes in all your usual podcast places.